Welcome to Creative Codex. I'm here today in Red Hook, Brooklyn, one of the last neighborhoods in New York City where you can still see the old cobblestone streets. It's a sunny Wednesday in October. The birds are chirping, the cars are honking, the country is on the verge of one of the most divisive elections in recent memory, and the world is working its way through a global pandemic. Curiously, exactly 100 years ago, this city was wrestling with a similar problem, the Spanish flu. But in spite of all of that, I'm taking the time to meet up with an artist whose work I've been admiring for years now. And we are going to talk about something distinctly human and refreshingly life-affirming. Creativity. That artist is Bo Stanton. His work, which includes paintings, murals, mosaics, and even stained glass, uniquely wrestles with the existential issues of our present time while reminding us of humanity's colorful past. I've always admired his work. Somehow, he's able to work equally well painting a five-foot-tall canvas as he is painting a five-story-tall building. His murals are alive with color, dynamic composition, and mythological subjects. I honestly still don't know how he does it, or why he does it. And that seems like a good place to start a conversation. I want to dig through the weeds a bit and learn about his art philosophy and what insights he can share with us about creativity. Bo has invited me to his art studio here in Red Hook, Brooklyn. I'm walking up to the enormous red brick building now, one which a hundred years ago was likely a factory. And you can still hear that history in the door hinges. We set up the mics, sit down on some antique sofas, and that's where our conversation begins. If you want to check out Bo's work while we're talking, head over to Instagram and search him up by his name. B-E-A-U, that's Bo, last name S-T-A-N-T-O-N. This is Creative Codex. Without further ado, Bo Stanton. Welcome to Creative Codex. I'm here today with artist, painter, mural artist, and renaissance man, <laughs> Mr. Bo Stanton. Bo, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Uh, pleasure to be here. 
thanks for the invitation. Yeah, and thank you for uh, hosting me in your art studio space here. This is an honor. I just really love seeing fresh work and the smell of paint and all that good stuff. Thank you. Anytime. So yeah, how you doing? Pretty good, all things considered. You know, we, we, when we're getting set up, we were talking a little bit about the silver linings of being an artist in a pandemic. Mm. There's, you know, it's, there's pros and cons, obviously, but having a little bit of extra time to, to yourself to focus or get caught up on work or plan or reflect, it's been pretty nice. Do you find that there's times where you would have had to otherwise meet people in person and take out like half your day, where now it's just, you could just call or do video conference or something with that kind of stuff? Or? I haven't thought about that, but uh, yeah, that's, that's probably definitely a thing too. Mm. But uh, yeah, it, it, I think we're all really looking forward to things returning to some form of normalcy, particularly be, you know, for travel and international projects. I miss that a lot. Mm. But I'm just trying to utilize the opportunities that are specific to this weird time. And part yeah. of that is uh, more space in the studio, more you know, in the schedule, and, and more time to... Uh, get caught up and do things right and not be just so one thing after the other uh, this, you know oh, yeah. lower lower stress and endless ways. grind yeah that is city life do you ever wish you could just like go live in a cabin and then occasionally just travel for the work of course yeah that's definitely a fantasy <laughs> be like Bonnie there for half a year right. every year just go hide out in a cabin produce a record at the end of the, the you stint. know maybe that's gonna Really, this whole experience is going to make people want to create that space in their life more. Mm. You know, this might be a wake-up call for a lot of people. They're like, "Wow, you know, having that four months was really nice." <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, of course. Yeah. There are the negatives, you know, so I don't want to minimize this whole thing and say like, "Oh, it's so great," because it's not. No, of course. Especially of course. for a lot of people, for yeah, I mean, forty million people. Yeah. jobs and right the jobs on top so, of the health issues that yeah uh, even if people survived they come with their own level of stress and, and anxieties and whatever but yeah yeah weird yeah. weird 2020 F finding silver linings has been yeah. my what, the through line here just mm. trying to figure out where the special opportunities are right and uh, how to make it through and feel like still utilizing a year because it is a lot like a lost year in a lot of ways. Yeah, years a long time. You yeah, can do a lot in a year. Yeah. But yeah, I hear you on that for sure. So, but in spite of the global pandemic, it's a beautiful day. It, it certainly is. It's really nice. I was just out there. The birds were chirping, and I guess fall is on its way. But uh, it's it's actually nice and sunny and everything. And Red Hook, Brooklyn. The cool thing I just noticed as I was walking through uh, Red Hook to, on my way here is that this is probably one of the last places in New York City where you can still see the cobblestone. We, we do have a lot of uh, original cobblestone streets around here, yeah. Yeah, it's really neat. I love it. There's, there's one that's two blocks down at the intersection that has like a radial pattern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's I, different styles. There's like Belgian block and then there's, I don't know them all, but I yeah. won't claim to be an expert. But I, I didn't realize until I moved here that there are actually existing different styles of, of uh, paving streets in the cobblestone style mm. that are specific to the Dutch or, you know, whatever 
you know, style evolved in Brooklyn. And, yeah. And then you can actually judge the age based on that style. Yeah, at our, at our house on our block, it's a very old block. When we moved there, there was, it hadn't been repaved in a while. So there were a few spots down the block where the asphalt had torn off a little bit. And you could see the original cobblestone. And it had like, there's some, there was some remnants of like red paint on it and stuff. And I, I was like, wow, this is it's so neat to see something that's likely 100 to 200 years ago. And then within uh, two months of us moving in, they like repaved it like real fresh. And it's mm. like it's completely obliterated it. It's just so bizarre to me though, also to just to think that we're living on layers and layers of history. And like, what's, what's underneath this layer? Or what's underneath that layer? And, uh, when I was in, in Poland last summer, I think, we were in this old city, Krakow, and they have this entire museum that's an underground museum. And the, the idea is that it unearths the layers that the city has been built on, mm -hmm. and then you get to see all the, like, the, on this layer there was some kind of mosaic in this exact wall, and it's still preserved because it was, you know, sealed airtight. And it's just a weird and, and fascinating idea. Yeah, I, I love all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, I guess, yeah, Rome is a great example of that mm. because you've just, the street level has been built up over, you know, over 2,000 years, like 15 or 20 feet, really, yeah. just from yeah. debris and building. And, yeah. and Jerusalem has actually some really cool uh, excavated sections of the old street level. So sometimes you're walking at current street level and then there's like a gated off area and you look down and it, they just have the old cobblestones excavated. You, see, you can see physically how far below it, it actually was. Hmm. Um, there's a spot I was at in Denmark too, in um, Alborg, and you're, you're in the main shopping center, kind of main street, and there's a little elevator. It's almost like a, like a Harry Potter kind of situation hmm. where you're gonna go into this you know, secret space. And uh, you go into, and then it takes you down and you're in a, a full on, um, medieval crypt. Whoa! Yeah, but I it's love it. nobody. You wouldn't know. I mean, it's a small sign that says there's this 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 little museum. Down but it's there. like expansive. You just get in this space. little elevator, takes you yeah. down, and uh, yeah, you end up in this. Uh, I guess it was uh, Viking uh, kind of crypt Ooh. space. So Very cool. you never know what's under there. Right, you never know what you're walking on top mm -hmm. of. Huh. So. I've done a number of these kind of conversational interviews, and uh, I, I love doing them for at least these two reasons. It's like one, it gives an opportunity to spotlight someone who is active in the creative field and uh, from all views, including my own, is, is ex exceptional in some fashion. That they stick out in a way. So th there's that element, but then there's also the secondary element that. I feel like in a conversation like this, uh, we can dive into elements of creativity and the creative process that kind of help both anybody listening but also ourselves understand this very unique and strange thing we do, which is practicing creativity. That's kind of the overall aim of this kind of like engagement. Cool. <laughs> Let me check on the mics, make sure that's all going. And Before we get into the real meat and potatoes. I know, right? Before <laughs> everything else is lost, and we only have the thing talking about the cobblestones. COVID. COVID, COVID and cobblestones. It's the new name of your uh, podcast, COVID and cobblestones. COVID and cobblestones. <laughs>
on the topic of cobblestones, what's weird uh, that I always think about when I see the cobblestones is I was once reading this book about the gilded era of New York City, and they mentioned like all this like stuff. Every street was cobblestones, and at first it's like wow, it's so cool, and then you realize like the next sentence they mention that one of the major problems of having cobblestones everywhere was that the horse manure would get caked into mm -hmm. all the cobblestones mm -hmm. on every street. And so it probably just stank. I mean, yeah. There'd probably be this whole nother business, which was just people being paid to clean out the cobblestone shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a much more fragrant city in a lot of ways. Mm. <laughs> um, but I imagine people got used to it. I mean, you, you get used to your, what you're raised in yeah. and live in within two generations, it's normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of starting in with the nitty gritty of all this good fun stuff, I have this curious question that I'm always really fascinated by. Is there anybody in your family who is creative in a sense or in a creative field? So my parents are, are both, I guess you could say creative people, mm. creatively inclined. They, when I was a kid, they both drew with me all the time and and I and definitely encouraged my creative progression in one way or another. So I had that support. Um, my dad went to photo school. He was a professional photographer for a number of years hmm. and then and then I guess moved into a more traditional kind of corporate world job. Still so, doing photography or no, no, just not doing that. So so my, neither one of my parents is, have, has been a professional working artist in my life I see. And during when I was alive. And, uh, but, but I think that they, their influence, I'm sure, helped to kind of push me into that direction or, or helped me to develop some of the, the predisposition to just being drawn to that and, mm. and being obsessed with it from day one, mm. which is probably why I decided to do this, because mm. I always had that, it was just a constant uh, through line, you know, and regardless of getting interested in music or, uh, or history or any other number of things that I've become obsessed with and put a lot of time into, the visual art, drawing and painting has always been my, my core right. prime directive, you know. Your, your main OS. Yes. <laughs> Everything else is built on top of it. Uh -huh. There's other, other algorithms and systems. Exactly. So, so what you're saying is that your, your parents may not have officially pursued art into their careers or adult, adult, further adulthood, but they certainly saw the value of it in, in you finding value in it and, and focusing on it and, and letting you kind of flourish if that was the direction you wanted to go in, kind of thing. Yeah, and, and planted some seeds very early on. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, it's just really curious to me the idea that occasionally, you know, it might be a, a generation or it skips a generation. It's not always that the parents are there as influences. And then there's other times where the parents might actually tamper that down, unfortunately, right? Mm -hmm. like, yeah. They can discourage it, like, what? You can't make any money as an artist. Like, get out of here. You gotta right. go into law, like, go get, into dentistry. You know? I did have a little of that on one side of my family. One side of the family, yeah. Yeah, and uh, which makes it even more satisfying now to, <laughs> you know, 
Now that they follow your in, your Instagram or social yeah, media, yeah, like, yeah, I'm not gonna oh, single anyone out on this one. But yeah, that, <laughs> so it's somebody that I do enjoy, uh, who is obviously very oh so supportive now. And then you're like, you told me to be a surgeon, right? <laughs> Which is fine. Everybody has their uh, their uh, I guess they mean well, right? I think I think that that's that's what we can glean from it. It's, it's not. Especially, especially this, our generation, I think, is, is pretty unique in that this creative pursuit has become a lot more normal. Right. Because it was really abnormal in our parents' generation. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I don't know if it's social media or if it's just the, the whatever the generation that is told they can do anything, you know, that Right, whole follow thing. your passions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is weird because that, like, skipped a generation. Because I think in yeah. the 70s, it was probably follow your pat, follow your... Bliss, I think they would say. <laughs> yeah. Which implied some drug use, maybe, but. Yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> then, yeah, 80s, 90s, that skipped it. And then, yeah, it's, it's odd that it's kind of back, like, oh, you can be whatever you want, huh? You want to be a ballet dancer? Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, I noticed that in parents I interact with, uh, it's, it's kind of a whole different world once you have a child and you're interacting with parents and seeing how they parent and what are the norms. And, yeah, there's definitely like a umbrella of broad support of this child is so full of potential that we, we almost like give them too much where like some I know some parents they're just like overbooking their kids schedule they got them on the karate and the hip-hop dancing and uh, wow. the art of the next day and this and this they just this all, all this like perceived potential is there it's great that they're supporting them at the same time it's like just like spreading them out into this crazy schedule. It's, it's weird. Part of it, I think, yeah, that's one of the hang-ups of modern life is everybody being stretched a little too thin. Mm. What are you going to do? Right, <laughs> right. It's, it's a different problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I remember, you know, when I... No one in my immediate family is particularly artistically inclined. Like, my father and my mother, they just had you know, more standard jobs. My dad works for an elevator company. And he's worked in the same company for since we came to New York City some over 20 years ago, which is fantastic. He's had a steady job with benefits and stuff. My uh, mother worked in um, like uh, nursing home care and that kind of stuff. But when I was going from junior high to high school, I like was starting to do like comic book illustration kind of stuff on my own and and also music. And they kind of didn't know what that was. Like, what is this? Like, what do we even do with this? But they're like, oh, maybe we should let him go to some kind of school that does that. And so to their credit, they didn't tamper that down out of confusion <laughs> or out of assumption that I should follow, you know, mm -hmm. a money path. So uh, that was a good thing. That was a good thing. Right on. Yeah. So how did you get into mural art? Because that's been kind of what you've been known for a few years, at least. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've been oil painting and very seriously drawing since I was 10. I've been, you know, always, just like any kid before that, I was just always drawing. And, but I've been very regularly oil painting since I was, yeah, since I was 10. Since I was doing 10? like an oil after school. Yeah, I was doing like an after school class. Wow. And, and and uh, then I got my BFA, and then I moved moved out here to Brooklyn, and I was doing freelance illustration, 
in addition to kind of working on my private fine art. And uh, I needed a job. When I, when I got here, it wasn't, you know, the freelance work wasn't going to carry me for too long. Right. And this was in 2008. Things were getting very competitive and difficult before the, the whole economic crash. Mm. And so I got a job working for this other artist. He's, uh, his name's Ron English. He's a, he's a very, uh, very well-established artist, big name in the urban art world. And so he, he works in a variety of, of media. He's an oil painter in the studio, which I kind of got hired to help him out with. And then he also introduced me to a lot of techniques working on the street. Mm. So that was the first year working for him. I, I started kind of adapting some of those things and scaling up. And I did my, mm. um, well, I think it actually took a couple of years before I did my own uh, first mural piece. Mm. So, but you were you were helping him with murals. I was, yeah, I was helping him in the studio and with murals, and I ended up traveling with him uh, internationally and across the country and doing all kinds of stuff. And that that experience, I started to to think to myself like, well, maybe I should maybe I should try doing a little bit of my own work in this arena because it's really satisfying working outside and mm. on this large scale. And right. It's this amazing interaction with the public that you don't get. Probably constantly, right? Yeah. You're walking by. For the most part, mm. has been very positive. Of course, you never know what you're going to get. But it's uh, you're not in a white-walled gallery space. Mm. People, can, people are consuming your work and experiencing it uh, without you know, really having any barriers. So whether they're walking to work or school or whatever, just in their neighborhood, people get really, really excited and end up having these really great conversations on the fly. Yeah. This is a very egalitarian kind of uh, form of art that is that I wasn't really used to and it's very refreshing. Mm. So there's a lot of positive reasons for, for creating public work and, uh, and I think that the, the community engagement is a big part of it. The leaving something, you know, in an urban space is really nice, and so I just started running with it, and I started getting opportunities on my own. I hmm. so. Do you remember what your first mural was? Yeah, it's uh, it was in Queens, hmm. and it really? was uh, part of this this mural festival community initiative on this block called Welling Court. Hmm. So Welling Court Mural Project. Is it still there? It is not. So I, at the time, I was sort of adapting my visual aesthetic uh, and doing collage work in the studio. So I was oil painting, but I was also taking these patterns and cutting them out huh. very meticulously and collaging them together. So I really just scaled that up, and I was doing these large wheat paste patterns hmm. that I then would paint other stuff into. And it was one of these rusty, sinking steamships on this tumultuous sea of these these round gear kind of things, which it's an image I've revisited <laughs> here and there. Yeah. yeah, it's it's well, we could talk about those uh, the recurring symbols in a moment. I definitely want to cover that. But uh, as that being your first mural, um, and and then other ones that have come after, the many that have come after, uh, do you find you feel attached to any of them, or? The, the, the progression of time that might result in, in a mural being painted over or destroyed because a building gets knocked over. Uh, do you, how do you feel about that stuff? There's, 
there's like an, an understanding that it's all ephemeral mm. because you really anything that's that's outdoors, especially on that is attached to a building, it, buildings change hands. There's obviously this texture of the city that moves in, whether it's graffiti or the weathering or fading or or just the the grout falling out of the brick. You know, like there's these are all the things that happened. <laughs> And, and the, you just kind of have to roll with that. That's just what happens. So uh, you just document it when it's done. Mm. And ideally, it'll get some mileage and it'll be out there for, for a few years. Uh, I think I have something that might be approaching 10 years soon. Nice. That's probably the oldest. Mm. And uh, they don't always, you know, and you, if you really want them to last, you got to have the the client or the building owner or whoever, the business, invest in a UV clear coat, which a lot sometimes can get a little pricey. Really? So really to stabilize the work and make sure it lasts, it's, this doesn't always happen. So there's no, I would say, there's no attachment. Um, although uh, you just, you put a lot of effort into something and you hope that it's at least going to be there for a reasonable amount of time. Right, right. What is the yeah. UV clear coat? It's like a special varnish type thing. Yeah, it's just like if paint companies like a spray make them. Or something? So it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah. You want to, you generally want to apply it with like an airless sprayer. Hmm. But some of them have are like a allow you to wipe off graffiti, oh. but also keep the paint from fading. Oh, interesting. Right, so because it creates the layer, and then if yeah. you put anything on top of it, you can just come with a solvent and rub it off. Interesting. But Personally, you know, I like the UV coat, if it, especially if I'm in a in a tropical locale or somewhere in the Sun Belt that gets a lot, or especially if it's on the side of a building, it's going to get cooked mm. every day. I, I'm all for that. I think that if something is in is in like a very busy urban center, especially if part of it's down at ground level, it's I don't like that it has to be this like maintained, sanitized space. So mm. graffiti doesn't really bother me and. Hmm. In that way, in New York, it's you tend to get a fair amount of respect. Oh, really? It depends on the city. You know, mm. London, they just they don't give a shit. No way. Yeah. <laughs> like just I, I, yeah. Well, it's just it's just different. It's a, the this the graffiti culture is just different. Right. Right. Or yeah. Or you just if you're less of a known quantity somewhere, then oh, uh, like, the idea okay. of street art. Uh, yeah, it comes some, with, with a certain element of respect, and like sometimes, if, if you're an outsider. Or sometimes, something. but just there's there is this tension everywhere between graffiti and street art street or muralism, yeah. because that public space was considered, you know, where the graffiti artists would work, and then mm -hmm. now, oh, you're, you know, so it's it's fraught, and it depends where you are and gotcha. and who, yeah. But for the most part, New York. For me, anyway, has has been a uh, kind of no no drama in terms of graffiti, and um, I don't feel like I uh, I need to necessarily protect it from that. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know? yeah, and yeah. it is it is a public space, and sometimes you get you get little things creeping in, and it's just part of the part of the lifespan of the work being yeah, in, no, exactly. being in a public space. Right, seeing it as a lifespan is a very interesting way to to think about it. Uh, I, I have uh, kind of this romantic inclination to enjoy like derelict buildings, abandoned places, uh, and even just the look of something mm -hmm. uh, becoming degraded. 
I don't know if you have that too, but if, if have you seen any of your work like uh, start to in some way get destroyed and do you find that that kind of like enhances it in some way or is it interesting to you or do you yeah. just Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting and I too have a heavy uh, fascination with these old structures and ruins and things that you can imagine what they might have been like and mm. the patina uh, of time is so, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's beautiful and yeah. it's super interesting. So I, I think that Maybe in another ten years, I'll see a lot. I'll have a lot more work in the world, you know, ten or fifteen or twenty years. That will be starting to show that age, right. you know, and yeah. and uh, and hopefully, I guess if I'm lucky, there'll be a lot of decaying Stanton murals. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I like the way that looks. I imagine if I painted something to that size. It would be kind of neat to see that happening, like just the weathering, just knowing that that's the passage of time. Yeah, and it was created within a a, snap, a specific moment. Right. And that moment, you know, I wouldn't want to go back and like refresh it, or you know, right. it's like it's it, it's it's from that time. Yeah. And uh, for better or worse, this is it's how it's gonna live out. Yeah, it's kind of cool to imagine one of them like two hundred years from now, mm -hmm. and then just like all crispy and but you could still see what it is and I don't know, just a lot of character to that kind of stuff in my mind anyway yeah yeah, yeah. either 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 they're gonna be preserved at some point or they're or it's just gonna be what it is like a ghost sign you know <laughs> I love those you're, you're ghost gonna, sign what, what's yeah that? so they're usually you see them on on the side of uh tall buildings in Manhattan. They're the hand, big hand-painted signs that were usually for a business that was there. Oh, yes, and, yes. And, and, and you just see the shadow of it's it It's basically just so worn down that you can barely read it sometimes. Yes. And they're beautiful. They are, right. right. And it's, uh, so yeah, that's the term that I've heard is a ghost sign. I like that. I so like they could be ghost murals, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, it's almost, with some of them, what I really like is either the paint has just become fused into the brick Mm -hmm. long after it's been removed over over time or i don't know it's like the the shadow of it that the sun was casting on it over decades has left the imprint on the brick both are kind of uh, fascinating and profound so yeah it's a cool idea so yeah you've traveled a lot like a lot a lot do you like traveling yeah yeah i do <laughs> it's great i've always been obsessed with travel as long as in my whatever mobile adult life mm. it's it's probably one of the biggest perks, you know, for me. I, mm. I I love being able to experience a new city, but also go to a place that's maybe familiar that I've been to as a traveler and go there and and leave a lasting piece, you know, do do work there. Yeah. So, like last year, I think was almost like reaching like peak, uh, amazing travel opportunities. It was really? really a great year, especially not knowing that it, this year was going to be the opposite. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I think the first international trip I did last year was, was in Cozumel, so painting a mural for uh, Seawalls, which is an initiative that brings artists to coastal communities oh, around okay. the world to create murals that talk about a particular conservation challenge hmm. that's facing that community. So. 
Cozumel's known for its really, really beautiful coral reefs, which have been declining in recent years. So I did, did a mural there that was talking about that. It was a stained glass window where all the panes were depicting textures from various endemic sea life from mm. the reefs, but the, the window was kind of shattering. Oh. So I've been playing with this idea of depicting these ecosystems as this fragile thing. Hmm. But also, I liked, well, the t this was right after the Notre Dame fire. We all remember how hmm. billions of dollars flooded in like within 24 hours to restore the thing, and it was great. Everybody was like, it's going to be fine. And then I remember reading a post or a meme or something fr from a you know, from a conservationist or environmentalist standpoint, it was like, hey, wait a second, you know, we have all, we have all these, these natural wonders that are disappearing and we don't have anywhere near this type of mobilization. Hmm. Not to say we shouldn't save these beautiful man-made wonders that are obviously irreplaceable, but, but there should be maybe a mutual, <laughs> you know, a, a respect on both sides here, then we should be able to do that. So I by depicting this rose window shattering with the, with the natural elements from the reef, I thought it'd be kind of a fun little commentary on our man-made wonders versus natural wonders right. and the, the, hmm. the priorities that we take. Hmm. Right. Uh, so that was really fun. And then, let's see, I think I was in Europe two or three times. I did this mural and, uh, for a festival in Gothenburg, Sweden. Then I did a project with the U.S. Embassy in Rome, painted a mural in, a, in a, an old market that was being trying to be bring, brought back. So the mural project there was meant as like kind of a catalyst to help reinvigorate the space. No, just as and, a side question on, on like these, yeah. even these projects, uh, how are you receiving these kinds of calls to work? Is it through, uh, do you have a manager, through agency? Because some of these places are so you know, distant. Uh, do they just hear about your work because they, there's some area that they've seen it on? Or? Yeah, it's, so it's just kind of a large extended network of people that I've, some of, some of these opportunities came from relationships I've been building and nurturing over the last decade. Mm. Some of them are just random, just I get an email, and I start talking to somebody and they, you know, and then it seems like it's going to be a good, good deal. So I do it. Hmm. So it's not, yeah, I, I've, I've done some application stuff for these requests for qualifications or requests for proposals, but I never, ever get anything from those. It's oh, really? always from the, the relationship, the, the close, uh, business relationships and the, the word of mouth stuff. Hmm. It's a good feeling, though, knowing that you know people who have engaged or interacted with your work or seen it, like that's what turns them on to it, not just that there's a form and then there was only so many people that applied, you know, that time, and so then they you know, chose. You know, it's different. You know, I, maybe I should do more of that. I don't know. I just it seems like I know I don't get when I do put the effort in on those things, it doesn't really come back. So I typically have enough from just the these long game relationships. So mm. sometimes you meet somebody or I was working for my old boss and somebody started following me 10 years ago and kept up with the work and then they happened to f see an opportunity eight years later. It's Sometimes that's just how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now with the Cozumel one, you mentioned the, the stained glass window. 
that just brings to mind the, the, there's a recurring symbol in your work of just the rosette in general, right? And that's just a, a fascinating thing that's just a very Beau Stanton symbol in a sense, because I can't say I've seen it anywhere else. But you do so much with it, and there's, there's a variety to it every time you see it. Um, you know, you fill it with a life of color in, in some of them, like the one that you did in the UK. I, I forgot what town that was, but mm -hmm. that was a yeah. That was in it was in London, but in Walthamstow, which is a little mm. on the outside. Which yeah, is humongous. It's just full of color. And yeah, that was the one where it was like the the flower in the center with the other kind of flora. Mm -hmm. kinda, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. One, you know, how did that come about? That just the symbol of the rosette? Is there that was a also last year? Yeah, it was last year that one. That was last year too. Hmm. Did that come about as a fascination at some point in your early development? Do you do you have associations with it? What what's what's going on there? So, so it's uh, it's 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 a nice, it's aesthetically pleasing shape. You know, it's symmetrical. It you can, it's, you know, it's contained in a circle. And the rose window, the cathedral rose window, is is a you know a very familiar, celebrated art history kind of thing on a pedestal, and and it also kind of I think it reminds us of like a divine thing. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, there's so, definitely associations, yeah, yeah. spirituality, just right. something higher right. than human. Exactly. So I've been using it in this kind of utilizing that association with this themes of conservation mm. and I just I just thought well one it make it you are kind of deifying nature and you're, you're mm. showing the kind of importance and I think maybe putting it in that in that setting might might help to draw more of an association for our responsibility and mm. and Anyway, just to end my personal just feeling. I mean, I, when I like my church is is going to you know out in, into nature. That's how I might do my thing. So, <laughs> so a little bit of it's just personal. A little bit of it is is an intentional messaging to the viewer. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, but just even just the the structure of like the more graphic version of the rosette that you use. I mean, if you look at it long enough. I mean, it has a lot of associations. There's an association of a mandala, but then there's also these other interesting associations of collective things, like that society is, in a sense, a rosette, and like the, the edges are, it could be anything, you can define it in different ways. The edges are the edges of society, or the outcasts, or the, the soldiers guarding the walls, or, you know, and then the, as you travel within, there's these different elements. Uh, you can also associate it with the, a brain, right, which you seem to occasionally do in your work as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is probably why I thought of it. It's right above you. <laughs> oh, it turns on. No kidding. Yeah. Wow, it's just lit up. So is that stained glass? What is it that? It is, yeah. I built it right here on this table. No kidding. It was, it was, uh, it's actually for a collector friend of mine who lives here in Brooklyn. And uh, I gave it to him six years ago, and he still hasn't picked it up. So it's No. He's a good friend of mine. I'll probably see him like tomorrow, but he's just—he's like, yeah, you can just hang on to it for me. So it's just like a—it's like a nice night light here in the studio. It's a brilliant—it's brilliant, it's a brilliant yeah. light. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and it's got a 
uh, LEDs behind it, and like, it's fun because you can do this sort of psychedelic no, setting and you can get where, where, it. where it changes the hue slowly over time, and so and cool. so you've got the you've got the color in, that the glass you know is actually right, yeah, and, and then you've also got the color of the light, so then light. It, it does some very unexpected things, which sure. is fun. It's fun to stare at, for yeah. sure. Very cool. Now I'm just so distracted. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might just have to put it on steady or something. I'm just, just going to be sitting at it for a while. But, um, but that also brings to mind this idea of, like, in your work, because of, because of this idea that there's certain recurring elements and there's, there's certainly a, 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 a palette that you use that uh, seems to carry across your work. Frequently, there's a feeling of like a pastel-like set of colors to me. But overall, though, in your approach, when you're creating any of these works, especially, let's say, the, the ones that you know are going to be widely viewed by the public, uh, what kind of intention are you working with that's propelling you in the design and the carrying through and, and uh, imagining what a viewer might feel or what it impresses on them? Uh, well, I guess I'm just mostly just following my own aesthetic mm. that I've developed from from being here. You know, the, basically the whole visual language that I have, am working in, I developed in this actual studio mm. for the most part. And um, placing these things in, in public spaces on buildings, you want to be very conscious of. Um, how it's going to be viewed from where and all these things come into play with the design and how it's placed and on the wall and, uh, and I typically like to have subtle references to the history or or the flora and fauna of the area or whatever but at the same time it's it's still I think that all of the works that I do no matter where they are they still feel like they're very closely related if you just pluck them out of their their spaces and put them all together, it would still feel like a cohesive body of work. Right. No, they do. It's a little bit of a balance they between sure. making it specific to a place, but also true to the trajectory of where I'm trying to take everything visually. So, though I like the you know I, my intention is for the work to always be evolving and moving forward. Mm. Um, but that I think each new piece kind of helps to inform that. And sometimes a piece that I did in. Denmark, you know, and then I end up going to do something in Cincinnati, there's like something I learned from that piece might be referenced in the next piece, mm. even though they're in completely different parts of the world. It's, yeah, it's weird to think of that, but that's they, they inform each other. You know, each thing informs the next thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is there any locale that you've been in that is like one of your favorites, that you, or at least memories in your travels of a place that you just really loved and you remember it so fondly? Uh, well, I was working in Lisbon last year, and that was my first time oh, okay, ever yeah. in Portugal, and that was that's an incredible place, and I really hope to get back there again mm. soon. What was it? What, what did you like about it? it? It just checked all my boxes. It was, <laughs> you know, beautiful old architecture, and the and the you mm. know it's known. F Lisbon's really known for the ornamented tile work that adorns these facades of oh, a really? lot of the buildings, and then there's the food is amazing. <laughs> People are great, and and it just it has a really it has an old world feeling. You know, it's like the seat of 
of this empire that was at the forefront of the whole age of exploration. Mm. And, and then now they're, you know, it's still an interesting cultural hub, but it's, a, it's, it's kind of, it's a small country with the this huge shadow of the past. Mm. Yeah, it was great. I was actually, I was doing this thing there. I was painting at the Global Exploration Summit Hmm. which is hosted by the Explorers Club. Oh, okay. And they were working with the tourism board there, so we get to go to these incredible places. Oh, yeah. The King's Old Hunting Lodge, which is now, like, a, an amazing venue. Huh. And then there, we had a dinner in this uh, historic... It was a museum. It was a maritime museum of royal barges. Huh. These things are just insane with... <laughs> These beautiful, like, sea monsters painted on all the oars and the oh, really? mermaids on the bows of these old ships, and they're just all meticulously kept wow. in this big warehouse. That's pretty cool. So I had, I, I, was, I had an unusual experience. You know, I was, I, because of doing this project, I had, was kind of given access to these incredible places that as a regular tourist I probably wouldn't have, sure. wouldn't have yeah, seen. Of course. But um, regardless, I, it's, there's just, it, the, the city has a really really great feeling and you know it's that combination of old and new yeah it's like a very modern place but it's just the history is very you can touch it you know even just the old door handles and, mm. and it's uh, tangible yeah 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 and they probably for numerous reasons maybe economy included haven't built over it and painted over all the all these uh, older mm -hmm. elements right you can still see it Right. Yeah. Well, we, we, it's had a, a definitely a renaissance in, hmm. um, in the past five, ten years. It was even, yeah, even five or six years ago. I think it was it was a little bit different of a place for tourists, anyway. Hmm. So it was, it was like kind of overlooked, you know, and so it still has that feeling, hmm. not being totally overrun by tourists. Right. Right. And that's an element of it that you really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, of course not. Well, I would enjoy it too. A lot of, a lot of expats there. Yeah. It's kind of feels oh, really? like what Berlin was like for a while. Oh, no kidding. Huh. So I think it's kind of, it kind of became a new, a new Berlin-like hmm. uh, hot, hot spot for uh, creative expats. Hmm. I have this um, understanding now, and, and it's a, I guess it's confirmed that you, uh, as well as myself, kind of romanticize the old world, mm -hmm. which might be totally granted because there's a lot of elements of this old world idea and associations that were, are true and uh, even goes down to like what the character of a, of a good person is or, um, or the, the archetype of an artist or an artisan that existed during these old world times their means of travel to the means of interaction, you know, person to person, being more intimately entwined with each other's lives. So that's kind of neat. It's kind of interesting. I'm assuming that's always been there as a part of your character, like in terms of digesting probably that kind of material or, or, or having it in you as, as an element of your core operating system in a, in a sense. Would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I grew up in a place, well, in a, in a suburb in Southern California that doesn't have much history. Mm. And so maybe I was just really drawn to it as a contrast to where I'm from. When I came to Brooklyn, I was very taken by 
by the uh, old brownstones and ornamented buildings and cobblestone streets and 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 the old barges and tugboats that go past my window oh, yeah. outside. Oh yeah, the this studio. is so idyllic for yeah. like a stereotypical New York City art studio. <laughs> like if, if if like there was a Dan Brown novel about you, <laughs> uh, he would say that the, there's this painter who's art studio looks over New York Harbor mm -hmm. and from his window he can see the Statue of Liberty on one side, Ellis yes. Island on the other, <laughs> boats, <laughs> ships which are occasionally featured in his paintings <laughs> passing through the harbor, like it's just mm -hmm. too much, it's, it's too perfect. Right, yeah, I didn't have to work too hard to find my source material <laughs> for my early works here. So, yeah, I think I was like thirsting for that, Yeah. for yeah. that kind of older old world you know obviously like new york the history that we experience here is very recent compared to most other parts of the world you know but to me it feels like it's very inspiring just having that having those layers of history visible mm -hmm. and and i in the work i think my incorporating historic references started mostly as a romantic obsession, hmm. uh, but it's kind of grown to be more of um, a device for for kind of using these old mythologies or reference or touchstones from the past hmm. that I feel like can help to make a statement about maybe our current challenges and our hmm. relationship to nature right. or the environment or whatever, you, however you want to frame that. And so now I, I try to use these, these touchstones in intentional ways because it's, it's easier to reach people visually with something that, that they might have a little bit of a, um, it's, it's a hook because there's an association already. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you can kind of take that and then you can, you can twist it a little mm -hmm, bit. Right, it's right. A nice, it's a nice way to, to initiate the conversation. Yeah, no, totally. No, yeah. That makes complete sense. I mean, you're calling forth echoes of a civilization that many of us carry forward with us in daily life for whatever reason just yeah. any amount of history that we've digested from kindergarten you know from a child looking in a textbook from first grade and seeing um, the same or similar imagery or uh, statues from Greece and all this stuff. Yeah, symbol, okay. symbols of, yeah. Of, of maybe like broadly human achievement mm -hmm. you know and then and then now all of a sudden you you have one of these sim these symbols of achievement that's half submerged and half on fire mm -hmm. and and now you you've you're eliciting a response and somebody's like what the what the hell's going on right there? right 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 but what's what's really curious about doing that is that you're you're moving things around in someone's unconscious mm -hmm. right and um, because the medium of, of visual art is so immediate, it, it can be like, whoop, like it just kind of sets someone back a little bit just to look at it for the first time. Because it was, what's weird also, yeah, about visual art is that it all hits you at once, right? Like a poem, you have to wait from the beginning to end to like get the full flavor of it. A meal, you have to eat, you know, over the course of a few minutes. A symphony or a piece of music or a song, you gotta wait. But the visual art just boom, just hits you and then it kind of settles. And then the kind of, when it's effective, which I think in a lot of your work it is, um, it kind of like shifts little things around in the unconscious, like little neurons connect this way, that way, right? And it's a curious thing to play with the symbols in that way. 
subvert them sometimes, right? And mm -hmm. like repurpose them for something. Yeah, my my general philosophy with with image making is like creating something that that can that grabs you immediately. So mm. there's a superficial attraction to the work, whether it's just like aesthetic beauty or mm. or impact of color contrast or dy dynamic composition or something that draws you in and, and then once you're a captive audience there's deeper layers that if you marinate in it long mm. enough right maybe you'll find some of those th some of those things maybe you won't but right but it's it's uh, to me the great art has those multiple layers mm -hmm. so I'm I'm generally uncomfortable or I don't get as excited about work that maybe only has the one, the superficial. And then I'm also equally kind of just not stimulated by work that is so heady and conceptual that you have to, that there's no access point visually and you just have to read all about it. So, mm. so for me, Too I try conceptual? to- Yeah, right. or just, right. I mean, and, and so, so my sweet spot is somewhere somewhere in between probably you know I still rely very much on aesthetic visual aesthetics yeah yeah but uh, I think I think that particularly in our in this time we're in where things are visually so immediate with Instagram and social media and everything it's it's an interesting tightrope walk of how do you how do you cut through all the the noise and how do you still reach people but then also give them something substantive mm -hmm. totally. to chew on. Yeah, no, that, that reminds me of just the, the, one of the main philosophies of art during a time like the Renaissance was the idea that beauty uh, could be used as a way to, to both teach someone about a certain idea religiously or philosophically and just as a, as a way to get in, get your foot in the door, right, as it were. Um, I've always just loved that idea in general. That, but on, on top of that, of course, just beauty as a form of truth of its own that engages kind of in its own way. Um, I, I certainly approach whatever creativity thing I, I'm pursuing in that same vein, though. But yeah, yeah it's good stuff. So I, I would probably say that's an element of your just your general spirit, which artistic spirit is probably there. But you probably knew that already. <laughs> sure, I don't know. <laughs> so what are the, do you feel like sometimes working on something large that you know is in public immediately shackles you or limits you to what you might want to say or express? Um, or maybe you can't be too personal, right? You can't like... I think, no, there's, there's not really, I can't really think of an instance where I was, I felt unable to create what I wanted to create. I mean, sometimes, depending on the client, you know, it's th there might be preferences based on past work where they're like, can you do something a little more in this vein? But uh, recently I did some work uh, for When We All Vote, which is a nonprofit to promote um, voter turnout, mm. which I'm, I'm all into, super sure. into it. And I... Uh, <laughs> working with the agency that's kind of managing the artist's submissions and how we're going, you know. Because clearly this is a, it's a nonpartisan organization uh, that wants to not 
come off as promoting any particular candidate, right. but and and be and just be positive, like no negativity. And I couldn't help myself, um, <laughs> and I submitted some uh -oh. ideas that I knew they were gonna not do. Really, you but I couldn't it? help you it. You know? <laughs> so I was doing a lot of these these nautical images. You know, I, I had the tagline like "A rising tide lifts all votes." Yeah, it's kind of cheesy, but it's fun, mm. and I can use this kind of triumphant, rusty ship kind of coming out of the, com, you know, coming out of the tumultuous sea. And uh, and I did a, I did a riff on that where it was one of these tall ships um, that is basically sunk, and there's only some of the the, the sails and masts sticking out of the waterline, mm. and you can kind of see this. The ship just kind of watered. And then you wrote, "This is America." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's pretty obvious what I was saying, you know. But it, um, and then, uh, and then I actually the the image they ended up going for, um, I was pretty pretty happy about. I ended up giving them a whole another alternative, which was a a hand holding a torch, mm. and it's very much a reference riff on the, on the Liberty mm. torch, and the. Kind of rays of light coming out from behind it, and the uh, there's a the hand that's holding the the torch above the waterline, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I w and I gave them the option of uh, I gave them just a few options because um, I I knew at this point they were they needed to make a real selection mm. and until they were feeling a little apprehensive about my earlier choices, <laughs> so so I gave them the choice of uh, real flame or uh, or Golden flame, similar to what's there, which is, you know, it's not like real fire, uh, and waterline or no waterline, ah. and uh, because I thought, okay, well maybe they think I'm going a little too negative here. The waterline's climbing up the. They wrist actually kind of thing, ended right? up going for the one with the waterline, which I felt like was, I would have been real disappointed if it wasn't there, because sure. the, the dynamic and the tension between the. It's a lot of urgency. The fire and the water and yeah. the, and you know, it's a more of a call to action. Yeah, yeah. For and sure. and it's subtle. It's not super in your face like the flame of liberty is going to go out, mm -hmm. or, or it's barely hanging on, guys, mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever you want to draw from that, whatever, whatever subtext you want to yeah. apply there or look for. So so in the end, though, it was kind of nice. You kind of. I felt like it was almost, it's almost like when you negotiate uh, like a business deal where you, you go way higher than you want to go and then you, they say absolutely not. And then you end up kind of somewhere in the middle. You know, it's kind of like that with these concepts where I sent them ideas they absolutely couldn't use initially. And then, and then with the final concept, they end up going kind of a middle of the road one. Yeah, which I yeah. Was, yeah. So. Sometimes that's a good way to go to overshoot on purpose. Yeah. Because uh, no matter what, certain people, when you collaborate with them or work with them, are always going to want to feel like they gave their two cents or mm -hmm. that they affected the final product because so maybe they're paying a lot or maybe they just that's the kind of temperament they have. Uh, yeah, everybody wants to feel useful. Yeah, like they, they had a hand yeah. in what finally is decided upon. I definitely noticed that with uh, working on, on film projects when I do music scores for films. Early on, I would just assume that uh, whatever I'm creating uh, is I'm a musical genius, and they're just going to accept it. <laughs> uh, that gets shot down real quick, and you realize that music is just so subjective that there's there's no way, or hardly 
very rarely a way where you do your first piece of music for this scene and they're gonna say, awesome, that's, it's done, let's move on to the next scene. So I learned over the years of, of these kind of trial and error things, even if I think it's perfect, I just give them three versions. And one version might just be the one that I think is ideal. The other version will just be without one of the instruments, just to be like, here it is without this instrument, just so you can hear what that sounds like. And then another one's like a really bare bones one where I'm like, there's no way they, that this would work, but maybe they, in their mind, they want to like pull back a lot. And so just to hear the dialogue or something. And that seems to work really well. Like just giving somebody the illusion of an option mm. and it makes them feel like, okay, yeah, no, great. No, I'll, uh, at least I made a difference in the world by pressing A, B, or C. Totally. And, and every option would be acceptable to you already. So exactly. you're not presenting like exactly. something that is going to make you feel like you compromised your artistic integrity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I can't tell you just how many times this happens. And this is not even, um, this is a universal thing among people who write music for films. Uh, you, you come up just, uh, you know, producer or director, and you feel like this is the best work you've ever done. And they listen to it or watch it, and they're like, uh... Uh, is too many notes or something? Just too many notes. I'm like, what? What? What does that even mean? <laughs> like, or like, uh, it sounds too much like a carnival. I'm like, how do I make sense of this now? <laughs> like, now I got to go back to the drawing board. Do I remove all the instruments? Do I start with different instruments? It sounds too childlike. It's kind of like start to figure out. Maybe they're talking about a specific instrument. Like, ukulele mm -hmm. maybe shouldn't be in there. But yeah, it's uh, you just give them options. Mm. That's the way to go. Probably works well with, with uh, visual art too. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah. The illusion of choice is all we really need. True. Mm. <laughs> I was going to make some snide comment about us entering into an election, but. Um... <laughs> it, crossed, you know, it crossed my mind, the illusion of choice and the election. Uh, very no, topical I'm, to, I'm, the, to the work you had I'm just very done. I'm very pro voting right now. I'm not going to say anything cynical. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. So you, there was a period of time where you kind of apprenticed and studio assist, did a studio assistant work for Ron English, you said, right? Uh, for people who aren't as familiar with, with his work, um, how would you describe it? Or like what are his like seminal pieces you'd say for people to check out? So his whole MO is taking pop culture iconography and sort of perverting it mm. in order to s expose the inequities or sort of what is wrong with America, essentially. <laughs> what's Specifically wrong America. What's wrong with a consumer culture, consumer culture. That, mm. and, um, and corporate uh, advertising and, and kind of turning a lot of these iconic characters on their head mm -hmm. or... You know, and a good example is he, he uh, well, so he, he really made his name by, by pirating billboards in, in Texas and eventually here in New York and New Jersey and by repainting corporate advertisements on his own rolls of paper hmm. and just kind of and just satirizing and skewering cigarette companies or conservative politicians or... Would he pay for the billboard space or... He no, just... no, he would just steal it. He would, he, he he would, would... paint over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And so he would show up with a high-vis vest and the helmet and everything and, uh... he, and he would 
he would wheat paste the thing up, and you know, as long as you're wearing the vest, people just assume oh, you're sure. meant to yeah, be there. Oh, sure, yeah, there's crazy amounts of crimes and you can get away with. Done, the right uh, he did over a thousand of these things. Oh, yeah. really? It was that much? Mm -hmm. I had no idea. And eventually, he started designing them digitally and hmm. and printing them. But for a while there, he was just hand painting them all in his studio. Okay. So one of the things I did for him for a while was was doing the the, uh, the file prep, the digital design stuff based hmm. on a concept. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, good example, you know, he did this whole series of those, uh, you know, those, like, cereal box characters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you kind know, these, Chocula kind of. Exactly, yeah. all of those, yeah. Uh, Rice Krispie elves, and, and, and so, you know, a lot of these, these breakfast cereals just, uh, they just have an absurd amount of sugar in them, you know? Sure, we're, like, yeah. feeding our kids this stuff, and they, they have this massive rate of obesity and diabetes in this country, mm -hmm. and... Clearly, a lot of it has to do with the over subsidies of corn, and then high fructose corn syrup ends up in everything just to make it taste a little better. And everybody's tastes get used to that, and it's what they like and what's right. what they eat. So, so he did this whole series of the uh, the serial killers, where they're all these like obese characters. <laughs> like, oh, no. what would the, what would the characters look like if they actually ate this product like oh, all the yes. time? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's this. There's a lot of humor in it, and. Uh, and he's, yeah, he did this, this t tons of characters that are a little bit disturbing, unsettling. Yeah, I but feel like some a, of his work just is, is psychologically unsettling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. he did this, this Kathy Cowgirl character, which is uh -huh. a, kind of a sexy cow woman with, <laughs> with, cow. with, uh, with like these like massive breasts, but they have udders on them. You know, it's like a, it's like a, uh. so it's sort of like, like playing with this idea of, uh, you know, we, we rely on this animal for like everything, right. you know, for like we, it's just, you know, hum, or humans, should we be drinking milk for our whole lives from this animal? Mm. And, and so he's just playing with the ideas of like desire and, and, and like, is this, it's a really, it's a really complicated character, but it's, and it's, What's her name again, sorry? Her name's Kathy Cowgirl. Kathy Cowgirl. So he's yeah. done more than one with Kathy, Kathy oh, Cowgirl? Oh, yeah, no, she's one of his favorites because people um, are so disgusted by it. So he, he, like, he, <laughs> he likes he, the reaction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's a troublemaker. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. So anyway, he's, he's uh, he culture jamming is kind of a thing he's really involved mm. in, and we used to make these fake products like we would go and we'd reverse shoplift them back into the store. <laughs> so a lot of these cereal <laughs> boxes, yeah, these like, you know, like, like fat Tony the Tiger on there, <laughs> or we would make all these uh, like hash brownie things, you know, just like taking all these, you know, weed legalization and, and making these fake weed products and putting them back in, in the store. And, mm. and, um, and you'd help with uh, that? Yeah, well, so I was, doing, I was doing the design for all of his products and making these fake cereal boxes and we were printing them out and basically manufacturing them and so that we could go places and mm. stick them in there. And then was there like a thing where a picture was taken of it? Yeah, of course. We would, we, would, we would sometimes, he would even, we would put it on a box that still had the original barcode so then we'd put them in, <laughs> in the, on the belt and then the person would be like checking them and be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, it was, it was uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun, and then he has a huge following. So yeah. sometimes he'd say, "Oh, there's uh, 10, 10 cereal boxes at the store in Venice because we're out there doing a show for him," mm. and uh, you know, and people would go try to look yeah. for him. And yeah, <laughs> Pick them up. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Uh, a riot. Yeah. Yeah. So really, a really humorous 
very unique way to, to sort of skewer the things that he sees wrong with with American yeah. uh, capitalist society or whatever. You were working with him for a number of years, right? Like five years. Five yeah. years. So, would you say that that was like a foundational part of your development as an artist? Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, like. Uh, you know the base level, just learning what it takes to be a professional artist. You know the the work ethic necessary. And this mm. guy's like he just is nonstop. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's and down to kind of basic things like color theory. You know, learned a lot about just painting in the studio. Just hmm. the way the guy uses color is very. Um, he's got just a really uh, amazing use and handling of color. Is he color, also oil color or harmonies? Or acrylic. Uh, both. Oh, yeah, 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 and then, and then yeah, it's just useful to learn the techniques of working, working on murals and public art and traveling and meeting people and just it was uh, yeah, it's just like an old world type of apprenticeship yeah. really, yeah. and of course the first couple of years I was working for him I was still kind of getting my handling and then, and then the last three years I worked for him I was sort of slowly replacing the work in his studio back, you know, with my projects, and then eventually I was able to to completely quit the day job, hmm. which, uh, as you know, living in New York City, so you gotta, yeah, really have your ducks in a row to, to be fully in business for yourself, and yeah, it, takes a, sure. it takes a while, so. For sure, for That sure. was seven years ago, so I've been, been uh, fully self-employed, or unemployed, depending on how you wanna look at it, <laughs> uh, for the last seven years. Uh, would you be open, I imagine the scenario might present itself, to someone wanting to be in that role with your, your art and your work where they are like apprentice slash studio assistant? Yeah, it's a passing of the torch. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an important, I think, part of the process. And I, I, have, I have assistants that I work with. I don't have anybody that's a full-time regular just because of the nature of my work the past several years has been traveling so much and so but I'm very comfortable having having studio assistants and mural assistants and so often I'll, I'll I'll find somebody or I have somebody that I work with in different cities depending on where I'm at so hmm. cool yeah hmm. eventually I think it would be nice to have a regular regular team yeah yeah I mean I can only imagine them. I mean, it makes things so much more streamlined. More work, right, can be taken on because less time needs to be spent on the basic elements of probably once the composition is laid out, right, you somebody uh, takes care of probably like the background element, mm -hmm. right, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, filling in shapes and sometimes transferring the, the drawing or uh, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that can be delegated. Right, right, which. A lot of people would be more than happy to to learn the ropes of uh, in that sense, but yeah, in that podcast interview you did on, on Vantage Point podcast, one of the techniques was mentioned uh, of mural painting, which I was like, "What was that? I wish they would have talked about that." So I'm going to ask you, uh, what what's the squiggle method? What is that? Oh yeah, the squiggle grid or the doodle grid or the overlay method. It's just an arbitrary uh, system of reference marks that you can use to logically get your image up in in proportion. Hmm. So it, 
it's called the overlay method because you take a photo of the wall with whatever marks or shapes or doodles, or I like to put little icons up there because it's like a fun mental exercise to just create a bunch of very simple icons that, that are completely different from each other. And it almost looks like hieroglyphics. Hmm. And it's a, it's a fun mental exercise because I, I, can't, I, I self-impose the rules that I can't repeat anything twice. They all have to be fairly simple and distinguishable. And what do you mean by icons? Like a like a crescent moon, or or a um, or a face, or a tape measure, or a coffee cup, or something that you can describe fairly simply in line. Mm -hmm. And so then all these things are on the wall. Hmm. Sometimes there's windows or or architectural elements that can be used as uh, points of reference as this well. This is on the physical wall, like yes. You, so you, you draw day one, I get up there. I've got my base coat down. I just start scribbling a bunch of weird stuff up there. Hmm. Take a picture of it. Then I can take my design, overlay that on there, whether that's in Photoshop or whatever. Hmm. And then you now, and then now I have a, a, yeah, a map. How and far? Because these marks are already up there hmm. that were arbitrary. And now I know, okay, the eyebrow crosses between the, uh, the moon and the sad, Three quarters and the sad of the face. You hmm. know, it goes like through here and goes, and then the hand kind of crosses between. So it's just, huh. it's a it's a fun, freeform way hmm. to get get it up there without measuring a, a grid or hmm. using a projector right, or right. making stencils or. Hmm. There's a million ways to do all of this. It's just finding the the technique that is uh, most enjoyable or least tedious. Right. Or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, take your pick. That does sound interesting. That's or really suits crazy. the end product the most, you know? Right, Because right. I like there to be a little bit of my hand in it. So if, if I'm using um, something like a stencil or a projector, you're losing some of that, I guess, organic, uh, whatever, like just being off a little bit, you know? So you're mm -hmm. getting more personality in the line. You're getting more personality in the depiction of the, of the thing because yeah. you're, you're intuiting it from like an hour, uh, yeah as opposed to just plotting it. Right, 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 right. Huh. Now, in terms of the actual uh, methods and paint that you use, is there one steady brand and type of paint that you're always using for outside work? Not really. I use whatever. <laughs> whatever? Whatever's available in a local Home Depot? It's like... <laughs> well, it's usually a combination between house paint and spray and low-pressure, uh, like, kind of fancy spray paint. Huh. Um, like an actual can? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I got a bunch of it over there. Um, so there's two brands that most like fine arty muralists use. It's hmm. either uh, German Montana or Spanish Montana. Hmm. They were, I don't know the exact story, it's very confusing, but they were originally in the 90s there was a spray paint company and then they there was a schism hmm. and now there are two. Hmm. So. MTN 94 is a Spanish, and then Montana Gold or Montana Black is the German one. They're all great. I, I, they have great colors on both in both selections. They're both very, once you get used to them, the, the, the low pressure combined with different types of caps allows a lot of range of line weight and, and ability to you know, fill large areas versus finesse small areas. You know, so there's a lot of control there. Um, with any of those brands. And then house paint, I mean, it's all the same shit. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. In terms of uh, 
probably you go matte or semi-gloss or no probably not lately gloss, right? i've been going with satin actually satin? Oh, um but i used to do matte but i guess uh it, it it'll hold up longer with a satin finish hmm. and also it's um it's richer hmm. because it's almost like it when it dries it already has the varnish on it quote unquote right right, right so right. yeah i think satin is usually the best way to go and then, um, and I started using one of these uh, Wagner hand uh, HVLP sprayers. Oh. So it's basically like I can do a big gradient or blends or things like that uh, very efficiently and quickly with this thing. Really? It's really cool. So you put the paint in the hopper, it pressurizes the hopper, and then it sprays it out. So it's not, it just connects to a plug. Hmm. So I use one of those now. That's it's kind called of called a Wagner Wetta Wetta? Wagner's just the brand. It's just a, in HVLP stands for like high volume, volume pressure. pressure, yeah, whatever. <laughs> VLP, low, pre low? low pressure? I don't know. High volume, low pressure? HVLP? Maybe. 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 I don't know. Who knows? This is the first I don't time think I've heard anyone of it. knows. I don't right. Know. Yeah. It's just what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like something that would be fun to play with. Yeah. Every time I create a new mural, I try to learn. Sometimes I keep like a little log. Like, what did I learn? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can use the controls on the lift this way and you get there a little faster. You know, stuff, little mm. tricks, little hacks. Uh, use the Wagner sprayer for this instead. Or, you know. So then I, you end up with a mental toolbox of techniques and things available. Uh, to, you know, you keep building that so mm -hmm. that any situation you're like, oh, mm -hmm. I know what I, I can throw this at this problem. So, right. And it right. is, I look at it very much like the, every wall is its own math problem. Sure. Yeah, you have to problem. solve it. Or puzzle. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting idea that all the things, the details you're talking about, because uh, I remember hearing this uh, theory about how mastery is achieved in any realm mm. or, or medium, and it seems to hold true. That the idea being that, you know, once you reach a certain level of understanding of, of your medium that you're using, you're no longer obsessed about the basics of what you're doing. Uh, those just become habitual, those are taken care of. And then you instead become obsessed about the, the nuance and the minutia. Mm -hmm. And that those become your focus of mastery. And that in, in those minutia and those nuances, actually an infinite level of, mm -hmm. of, of what you can master. And so it, it's kind of an interesting thing when you think about it. It, sound, it sounds like where you are with, with these details where you're talking about, you know. Um, this versus that, or just the angle of you know the spray, or you know, the changing the pressure and all that stuff. It's uh, you're playing with the minutia of it, where like somebody to somebody else who ha doesn't have the experience with the medium, to them it could be all the same. You know, and to them it could be just what's the difference? They won't probably even see the difference, right? Uh, but but to you, with the experience that you have with the medium, you're you're you've gotten to that point where like you're playing with those little things. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and also. I think there's a, def a desire to to continue to be challenged. Yeah, that's the big so part, yeah. so sure. finding out how to continually elevate the work through techniques or whatever else we have available. You know, mm -hmm. So that's yeah. Sometimes simplifying. You know, sometimes how do we boil this down to its to its core? That's the thing where I'm at now is I'm trying to figure out how to simplify and and make things more more elegant and and not have to s yeah because I have a I have a tendency to 
get very complicated with mm. my compositions sometimes, and and it's it's not always the most efficient, but it's also maybe not visually efficient because you know whether or not all those extra hours tediously working on making all these perfect radial lines or this pattern or whatever. You know, that's a thing I've spent a lot of time doing, but right. is it really the best use of the time? <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe I should be simplifying some of those things and spending more time talking about something else in the work. I don't know. Hmm. Right, right. Well, it's uh, odds and ends, yeah, the little things. So, oh, yeah, this is an interesting question. Like, let's say if, if next month some either higher power or someone you know told you, Okay, you can no longer do art ever again. And then that's just, you would have to accept that as a thing for whatever reason in this, you know, other world scenario. Uh, what would happen to you? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Besides be completely devoid of any purpose and have a mental breakdown? There you go. That's the answer <laughs> I was looking for. <laughs> That's what I suspected would happen. Or what if I was just like really relieved? Really? No, I doubt that. You know? I like, mean, in what sense? I don't have to. I don't have to be obsessed with this constant like one-upmanship to myself and having to continue to push this boulder up a hill. And and now I can just like get like a day job. That's, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like there's no pride anymore. There's no sure. there's no ego about sure. it. It's just like, oh, well, that's gone. I guess I should. I guess I can just, yeah. Right. I mean, but they <laughs> they would be telling you that, but that doesn't mean that your drive to do it would be gone, though. Maybe it would. I don't know. Just because they said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm obviously, um, yeah, playing devil's advocate. I don't think I would. I don't think I would be very happy about that. Yeah, no, I imagine I would be <laughs> the, the initial reaction would be maybe some relief because, uh, like you're saying, there, there, there's always an amount of pressure because you're relying on it as a form of living and a form of you know sustenance and for your future planning and such. But there's pressure involved with that since it's a line of work and career. So there's some relief, but then after that, probably within a, a month's time, uh, you'd probably fall into a depression and Yeah, like who even am I? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's pur like... purposeless. Purposelessness? Yeah. No, it's, I, I don't know, I assume you're the same way, where a lot of your self-identity is wrapped up in, in, in your being a, a, a creator and making something and being good at something. And like a lot of my self-worth, I'm sure, is mm. very much wrapped up in, in always, you know, okay, well, I was, I was never good at sports. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, academically was pretty good, but hit or miss when it came to math. Yeah, math, math <laughs> you know? is the weak point. Yeah, no, exactly. But then, hey, at the end of the day, you, it's like I always have this thing that I can be like, yeah, I'm good at this. Mm. So. It would it'd be an interesting social experiment to just completely take away that those defining things. Yeah, what would happen to us? I don't know. Mm. Well, I, I think it even goes deeper than that, though. Like, there's a, there's a term in psychology that I really like. It's called high creative. So someone who's a high creative uh, essentially is, is someone who their life satisfaction 
is dependent on their amount of time they have to pursue meaningful creative work. Mm. And this can be just completely personal creative work. They don't even have to share it with anyone. But just the idea that uh, somehow the, the, the act of creating is, is even more than just part of their identity or self-worth. It's actually uh, intrinsically part of the, the pro, their OS. We keep returning to that idea. Mm. But that without it, their, their body just, it doesn't, it doesn't find the same coping mechanisms in the environment or satisfaction in the environment. That, that it's actually deep in there in, in what you would call a soul or, you know. Yeah, and I, people always talk about, oh, wow, I could never do that, or you're so talented, and it's obviously genuine compliments. But I, I'm always uncomfortable with that because I feel like as human beings, it's, it's really, the creative impulse is really in all of us. I mean, mm. every, every kid draws. And when people retire, they get old, they usually try to spend their time doing something creative, whether it's woodworking or yeah. watercolor painting or gardening or something. You know, there's, I think we're like beavers or ants or something, you know, <laughs> and we're, we're builders. Mm. And, and we, we make stuff, we get satisfaction. It's like a part of our DNA, I think, to, right. to, to create. And I think that, yes, not everyone has the temperament to be an artist in our society, because it is, requires a lot of sacrifice and it's a very long road but I I think that our the ability and the and the desire to make things and create is more common in our species hmm. than than not I don't think we're we're that is an outlier mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's the I think it's the opposite but hmm. so you take that away and then what oh well you know what are you going to fill that <laughs> void? Are you gonna what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah, well, Netflix, I guess. Uh, but, I mean, there's, there's plenty of people who live that way. And as much as I agree that uh, creativity is an essential part of what uh, humanity is, right? Like, if you were to define, here are the characteristics of what humans are. Creativity's got to be on there. It's, it's pretty essential. But at the same time, there's plenty of people who, who feel like they're living a satisfying life without doing any of that. And then there's other people who pursue it despite the fact that they probably shouldn't because it'll be an unstable living, you know, uh, an uncertain amount of time spent without a return guaranteed, right? So it's illogical to pursue. And yet uh, many people do. Um, despite all those things, and still are satisfied with their life, right? So mm -hmm. there's something, I think, going on there that's like just the wiring of, uh, of a specific kind of person that you could label a high creative that are usually also the, the types of people in history that we've termed creative geniuses, for lack of a better term. It's their life satisfaction was dependent on pursuing the act of creativity mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a kind of a nice optimistic place that maybe we, we can bookend things. Sure. Uh, some side, maybe these are qu some quick fire questions though. Uh, do you listen to anything while painting? I listen to far too much NPR. Which, really? Uh, yeah, into NPR. Yeah, which, you know, lately I've been having to maybe move away from just Yeah, no, it's so predictable. <laughs> it's so predictable, like what they're going to talk about. I used to so, listen to it constantly too, but now it's yeah. just like, 
election, 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 politics, yeah, politics. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, so that's that's a thing. But I, uh, it just depends on the city I'm in. Like I, uh, WFMU has is a good radio station here in the city, which mm. has all kinds of super weird uh, 89, personalities. Eighty nine point five or something. Ninety one one. Ninety one one. And then 89.5, I think, is, uh, is a jazz station. That's um, Oh, okay. Uh, which I do also listen to mm. often in the studio. I rarely, I rarely do podcast. I never actually never do podcasts. <laughs> it's just like a thing, you, you know, like you, I just never, never done it. Right. Just never done it, done it? Or just you tried it and it's too distracting? No, I mean, I like, I, there's all kinds of great podcasts about history and art and yeah. And things that I know I would thoroughly enjoy. Right. I, just, I just haven't like, I just haven't done it. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so maybe, a maybe new, this is the year. Right. I, you know, maybe a new area. I mean, I, just dro- I drove cross country for a month by myself. I didn't even have a single podcast on my phone. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes it would just be silence. Well, that's. Or sometimes I would just listen to, so the the country station that's the only radio station in most of southern Utah. Yeah. And just try to understand the culture. Right, you know, right, right, right. Well, just to expand my horizons. <laughs> right, no, country music yeah, is a big staple of, of um, a large part of the middle of America. Yeah, and, and to be yeah. fair, I, I, I don't like, as a rule, I typically don't like any country music that was made after 1975. Oh, there's so much good but country music I know, before then. No, yeah. well, there's a lot of good stuff. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure that there's good stuff being made now, and, I, and I've heard some good stuff. But, you know, it's it's the kind of the stereotype of like the pop country that I think yeah, uh, yeah, no, I generally mean. shat on yeah. <laughs> by, <laughs> by the uh, elite coastal, coastal uh, elites. You know? Yeah, by... <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> to be fair, they too. shit on the coastal elites quite a bit in pop country. It's all about why, like, <laughs> like why L.A. sucks or why, you know, yeah, it goes, it's a two-way New, York, New Yorkers, you know, thumbing their nose at flyover country. These are, these are common themes that I've yeah. found, which is very interesting. Yeah. A lot of... A lot of uh, um, aggrieved kind of things that are brought out in this, you know. Yeah. So. No, no, I love old, like older country stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, especially, like, I mean, when you get into the blues and country blues, that stuff's uh, timeless in a sense. Absolutely. Root, yeah, just yeah. like roots country stuff or, mm. or like, uh, you know, back in the kind of like 40s country swing stuff. Oh, it's just, anyway. I was in Nashville a couple years ago and found my honky-tonk. <laughs> on Broadway, and it's called Robert's Western World, huh. and there's just all live music all up and down that street, 24/7. Huh. And Robert's is special because it's unchanged for decades, but all the performers only play country music from before 1975. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how I like nailed down my rule because I was like, oh, everything that is played here, I love. <laughs> Every, any, there wasn't anything I heard in that in that bar that, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. that I wasn't crazy about. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, here's here's one question and then an, an, an afterthought. Um, are you into Dolly Parton at all? The early Dolly yeah, Parton. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff? Okay, so there's a podcast all about Dolly Parton. I think oh. It's called My Dolly, and I was never really so much into her, but I listened to the podcast and it turned me on to Dolly Parton, yeah. especially that early stuff. Oh yeah, she's an incre- incredibly progressive figure. Yeah, and uh, yeah, to- totally. So I'll I'll link you over to that because that's maybe a way to uh, introduce you into the podcasting world. Cool. Maybe <laughs> yeah, maybe you'll get me to finally, you know, commit to to listening to podcasts in the studio. Yeah, it could I'll be. Probably could be. be hooked. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
So maybe on that note, that's uh, how we'll wrap up in talking well, about and, the thing that we're actually very made Dolly of. Parton. Talking yeah. about podcasts on a podcast. Wow. And very art. meta. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, was there anything else you wanted to uh, turn people on to in terms of uh, your work or uh, anything to mention as we're wrapping up? Uh, everybody should vote. <laughs> there you go, I did it. I did yeah, my just duty. Think of, yeah, just think of Statue of Liberty <laughs> hand <laughs> slowly just, being just, yeah. submerged. Let's, let's, <laughs> uh, let's not let that happen. <laughs> no. Uh, maybe uh, this is another closing one. For any listeners who might also do mural art, uh, any recommendations uh, in terms of organizations or well, just I think advice. My my base advice for any any artist, particularly in the visual realm, is just make as much art as you can. Mm. Just churn it out, mm. and because I think a lot of times we get hung up on self censorship. And, and, you know, we only get better by making more work and making, getting all the bad art out. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> so that was a p- piece of advice my old boss gave me, which was, you got you to gotta make all the bad art before you can make the good stuff. Mm-hmm. So you just keep, you just got to churn it out. Yeah, which is, takes a deal of, of courage mm-hmm. and maybe a delusional sense of self-confidence. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. I deserve greatness or I deserve success. Mm -hmm. And you got to like wade through the crap a little bit to get to the gold. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Sometimes you create the surplus and then in that 10 uh, things, there's one gem. And then, yeah, then you, you decrease the amount of crap as time goes and make more focused gems. There's a a inversion of the yield curve at some point where it Mm. goes, you know, net, Non crap. <laughs> exactly. Know? That makes yeah. sense. Well, good. That's a an optimistic end to a really great conversation. That's right, That's That's right, right like kids. Those. Stay in school. Yeah. Make as much art as you can and vote. That's it. You do. You want to stay in school? Really? <laughs> I don't know. I, don't I just know. did. I just did that. As, it's a stereotype. It's like the Mr. T thing. You know. Stay in school, or maybe if you have an opportunity, don't go to school and get into debt at all. Slash. Make your art. Everything has to have like a, the ultimate like disclaimer now. You know, right. you just have to. <laughs> yeah. I'm not endorsing this, but I'm also not saying no. Don't, don't do it. But <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll I'll link over to all your uh, media stuff so people can check it out. Cool. Um, Bo Stanton, Instagram. B E A U, Stanton, S T A N T O N. You did it. I I did it. I did it. It's <laughs> it's a great name. All right, man. Oh, look. What I brought, my journal, uh, uh, I has, love a, it. has a little rosette pattern. Yeah, it certainly does. That is, uh, that's beautiful. Thanks, I didn't make it, but I thought you'd dig it, and it was perfect for uh, the convo. So, yes, again, thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. And Thanks I'm for sure having me. Thank you again. And until next time. Cheers. Cool. It was a lot of fun talking with Bo. I'm glad we were able to explore some of these really important topics and issues. Um, That one section of our conversation about the principle of using beauty as a tool to get your foot in the door psychologically, ah, that's like a favorite topic of mine. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. For all things Bo, I would suggest either going to his website or his Instagram page. On the site, 
you can find these fantastic high-resolution versions of his work. That's www.beaustanton.com. And his Instagram is his name as well. If you enjoyed the heady topics that we covered today, I'd highly recommend giving episode 14 of this podcast a listen. That's titled 14 Why Humans Need Art. In it, we cover a lot of similar ground, including the psychological concept of high creatives, the ability of art to express the inexpressible, and what the world would look like without creativity. If you'd like to support this show as a patron and unlock exclusive patron-only perks, like all of our creativity tip mini-episodes, head over to patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash m-j-d-o-r-i-a-n. There are numerous tier levels that start as low as $1. As always, I'd like to send my thanks to the patrons of this show. Thank you to Sam McCohey, hopefully I pronounced that right, Owen McCatier, Micha, Chris, Timothy Kukharchuk, Blake Huggins, Vero, Jay Booth, Anudi Valerio, Jay Stacks, and DVM. Shout out to you all. Thank you for your support. And thank you to everyone for even listening and sharing this show with people who you think will dig it. Thank you. This has been Creative Codex, and I am MJ Dorian. Our next large form narrative episode will be about the poetess of Amherst, America's favorite enigmatic recluse. Emily Dickinson. So stay tuned for that. Until next time, keep making art, keep supporting art, and keep doing lots of both. Cheers. Cheers.